Welcome again to another edition of Not Your Father's Data Center. I am your host, Raymond Hawkins. And today you will not hear me talk much at all because we have the great Bill Clayman with us. He is going to uh, man the microphone, which will make my job really easy. Uh, he's awesome to talk to, a friend of the program. Uh, we love him at Compass. He is far more entertaining to listen to than I am. After I get through his uh, illustrious array of titles, we are going to hand him the microphone and let him talk about his background and how he got in the data center business. So a uh, board member and advisor at Neuro, AFCOM Data Center World uh, Program Chair, and a contributing editor at both Data Center Frontier and Data Center Knowledge. So if you read about the data center business, Bill's had something to do with it. If uh, you care about our standards and AFCOM, Bill's had something to do with it. And uh, Neuro, he's all over that place. So Bill, welcome to Not Your Father's Data Center. You know what my kids say every time they hear that? They go, but dad, it is my dad's data center. <laughs> so there's only two people that this that this show, do, this show title doesn't work for. Yeah, well, I, I, I think my five-year-old doesn't quite know what a data center is yet. She just understands all the blinking lights and whatnot. But you know what? I, I love it. And thanks for having me here, Raymond. I really appreciate it. So we're super happy you joined us. And if you're willing, we're going to let you um, dive right into telling us about you because I think you're pretty well known in our industry, in our space, and lots of folks know a lot about you, but I don't think they know everything about you. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? How'd you get in the data center business? Uh, let's dig into some of that and, uh, and see where that takes us. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And everybody listening, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here on, on this show. The data center industry, just technology in general, is something that's near and dear to my heart. It's actually funny, if you go on my LinkedIn profile, I think literally the byline or the very top is like, I love technology. And then I go on to tell you why I like it. There's a, a really good book out there. It's an Amazon bestseller that I had a chance to co-author. It's called Greener Data that outlines the beginning of, of uh, or the nexus of my career and what I've been doing. I got a nice little bulky chapter in that book. So, okay, everybody, we're going to be friends really quick. Uh, my name is not really Bill. It kind of is. Uh, I was born, my name is Vitaly, and I was born in Kiev, Ukraine. And, uh, you know, I came to the United States in the, in the early 90s. And the reason I'm telling you this is because, you know, Raymond and I had a little quick little chat. He's like, Bill, in the same level of excitement. Bill, how did you get yes. into this data center industry? Uh, how did it all start? And um, what's fascinating is that uh, my, my nexus actually started when I, when I was very young uh, in, in Soviet Ukraine in Kiev. And my brother, he used to compete in, uh, there's no other way to put it, telegraph competitions, the, the, the switch, the switch and everything. And he would let me sit on his lap and he would put like these big headphones on my head. And uh, he taught me numbers and some letters. And I was like six or seven years old and I would be able to communicate with people all over uh, then Soviet Russia and obviously Ukraine as well. And even at that really sort of young age, I was fascinated, fascinated by how we could bring people together and closer by using technology. And obviously, yes, phones were available. Um, this was in the late 80s. But it was absolutely fascinating. And I, I really enjoyed the concept and the solutions and just, just the idea behind using these, these tools to bring people together and closer. And I, I carried that excitement on through my high school career where I did uh, a bunch of AP classes, uh, definitely around things like coding and comp sci. And I realized that my passions lie more around physical infrastructure, that design, architecture, engineering, and so on. I, am, I feel like I'm an anomaly here, Raven, that I'm telling you this story because I 
I'm not a transplant. I started off in the data center industry. I actually went to a trade school and got a network engineering undergrad um, and then a master's in business and then another master's in information security. And from graduating with my, with my network engineering undergraduate, I've been in the data center industry. I had a chance to work for the country's largest Citrix partner for a while, uh, left them as their CTO, had a chance to spend time in DevOps, spent four years working with uh, obviously co-location data center industry with my former company called Switch. And now I get a chance to dive into and work with all of these crazy things that you're hearing about, like ChatGPT, generative AI, uh, large language models. But what's really fascinating is that these tools that I'm working with right now, we can talk about them, are things that are democratized for our industry, Raymond, the data center industry and telecommunications and how we can be capturing the power of these technologies and not just leaving it and relegating it to the hyperscaler. So I feel that I'm lucky. I, I was at a seven by 24 conference just recently and I was at a big panel. We were talking about education and, and young people in our industry. And I asked the question, all right, everybody, how many in this room are native to the data center industry? And by the way, everybody listening to this, you know, are, are you native to the data center industry or are you a musician, a doctor, accountant? I was the only one that raised his hand because everyone else was in some way adopted. I'm lucky. I love this industry. I love working with critical infrastructure. You know, I'm absolutely fascinating, uh, fascinated by everything that we do every single day. And I love, love, love showcasing and sharing with the industry that we are so much more than big buildings and blinking lights. I mean, this industry is really cool. All right. So I'm sticking with Vitaly because I like it and I, I like think it. I can say it properly. So you I'm sticking with Vitaly for the rest of this recording. You weaved right through Kiev and then you, you went into the Telegraph and then you jumped into the data center business. Hold on. Okay. Kiev and Ukraine are in the news a little bit uh, for the last year. Um, we, so let's back up. How did you get from, because you're in Chicago now, I think, right? right. Yeah. So, 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 so there's, there's a, there's a big journey in there that we'd love to hear a little bit about. So get us from six year old Vitali, uh, working, communicating via telegram to your, to, to other pe telegraphs to other people and get me to how you're in the United States. There's, there's gotta be a fun story there, a fascinating story. So let's, let's hear some of that journey. You know, I, I feel like we, you know, I wish we had more time to, to talk about some of this because I'm, I'm giving you like the Cliff's notes version of it. So yeah, born in Soviet Ukraine in, in Kiev, and uh, I'd say things started to sort of go downhill when Chernobyl happened in 1986. Uh, you know, we actually moved to Crimea uh, for a little while just to try and escape it, um, you know, making sure that I didn't have any health issues uh, and so on. And we stayed there for a little while and then went back right around 88 and 89. We pretty much saw the writing on the wall that, you know, the, the Soviet government wasn't going to last very long. So Vitaly, for people that aren't as old as you and me, give them the distance from where you lived to the Chernobyl incident. And I know you moved south down to Crimea. Give, give people a little bit of Eastern European geography. Pripyat to Kiev, it's, it's not that long. It's probably like a, like a 20, 30 minute drive or so. So for folks who don't, who, who don't appreciate this, the largest nuclear accident in our globe's history was less than an hour from your house. So yeah, when you say you moved, you guys were getting out of town. Yeah, yeah, we we definitely. So overall, it's between like like yeah, it's about an hour drive, hour and a half hour drive. I would say Chernobyl's a little bit further away. It's probably like fifty to sixty miles from where we were. Still not, you know, 
very far. Yeah. I, I just want folks listening to appreciate when you say you guys were, hey, Chernobyl was an incident. It wasn't like it was a docuseries that we got to watch 40 years later. This was your family, an hour's drive away. This accident's happening in Soviet, at the time, Soviet-controlled uh, Ukraine, and, and probably not the, the best flow of information about the accident. No, no, we didn't know what happened effectively. And as you remember, they had uh, a parade, uh, I think literally like the next day in the city of Pripyat, uh, where somebody on the, on, the, on the roof was taking a picture of the green glow of the graphite reactors melting and, and, and spewing out, you know, iridium and cesium into the... Uh, no, Vitaly, it, I've read about this. I was, you know, I was not born yet. So I've, <laughs> I don't think I get to pass that one. Yes, I remember. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. couldn't get that one out with a straight face. I wasn't born yet. Fortunately, I was. Yeah, uh, I, I appreciate that. You, you try to make it. <laughs> All right. So, so Chernobyl happens. Mom says we got to go. Literally, mom and dad. My, dad actually had to stay back and work a little bit. Uh, but me, my mom, and my brother, and some extended family hopped on a train, literally, uh, and went to Crimea. And that's actually where we learned what happened. We had an idea. Um, what was going on? It was it was either the Americans launched the bomb or, you know, because we were, we were being told to get the heck out of Dodge um, and we weren't sure what was going on. Um, but when we got to the south, to Crimea, you were able to like tune into like like European radio stations and you could hear like they're like, OK, something happened in northern Ukraine, like right by the Belarus border. And we're like, like, OK, I, we think we know what's going on here. And that was sort of like that was the nexus behind a lot of the decision making that we had to sort of to get out of not just not a dodge, but uh, I get out of the country. And many folks stayed. Uh, you know, we had we had some family members and some friends definitely stay back. But when when we decided to leave, that was right around the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Soviet government at the time that we announced that we wanted to leave. They took our passports, uh, they tore them up and they called us traitors to the nation because you're either Russian or you're nothing. Um, which is, you know, Raymond and everybody listening, not unlike what's happening to the Ukrainian culture right now by by the Russians. Um, and so we basically had to get rid of everything. We had, you know, just a couple hundred bucks. I had a couple of toys with me, a couple of backpacks, and we were political asylum refugees uh, living in Europe for a while until we finally got a political asylum visa to the United States and came to good old Brighton Beach, Brooklyn uh, in the early 90s. And then moved into a little apartment in northern uh, north north of Chicago. Uh, it, it was in the city, just the north side. Lived our extended family in one little apartment, and literally built everything, uh, everything from scratch. And so this is the um, late '80s, early '90s when you early '90s by the time you get to Chicago. Yes. Yeah. All right. Awesome stuff. Uh, you you won't hear many data center podcasts where you're going to get a firsthand account of fleeing Chernobyl. Um, that is pretty, pretty amazing stuff. So that's why I wanted to make sure you got it in there because it's not just, Hey, we decided to leave Ukraine. This was, we got to get out of Dodge and, uh, and, and yeah. how it led you to end up being now an American, which we're so excited about. I, and I love, I love being here. It's, 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 this is an absolutely wonderful country. Nowhere else I'd, I'd rather be uh, for those listening that series Chernobyl that was done. Uh, that was very, very well done. Uh, very good perspective. Very open and honest. If that's like the one thing that you watch about what happened in my home country, uh, to really try to embrace and understand the situation, that that's a good one. That's a good one. You 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 know get get, get a tissue or two already. Um, you know because we obviously had friends and 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 people that we knew responding to that incident, and you know some of those folks are going in nothing but like a gas mask and a you know paper thin radioactive suit. 
um, when studies show that in the center of the radioactive zone, you couldn't really spend more than 30 to 40 seconds shoveling that stuff off a roof where, you know, people were spending more than more than that. But, you know, it kind of goes to show you the state of the things back then. So so I did watch, I can't remember if it's Netflix or what it is, but I did watch the whole miniseries. And, and I think the, the biggest thing that, that, that struck me and the lack of respect for human life out of the Soviet Union. I think that's the thing I left with is, is thinking that their lack of appreciation for the safety of their people, for the sanctity of life, that the image of the state and uh, technological advancement and the honoring the country from a perspective of, hey, look how great we are, was more important than the humans that live there. That to me was uh, probably the biggest impression and, and the biggest heartbreak watching that whole series. I mean, I, I, it goes to say like there's a nuclear meltdown and the Russian government decides, hey, let's have a parade. Yeah. Yeah. And let's tell everybody it's it's not our fault. It wasn't us. It's yeah, fine. Just... It's no problem. Don't worry. Green glow is normal. Yeah. Nothing to see here. Yeah. Incredible stuff. Well, we don't get too many um, folks that uh, got to live through what an incredible part of history and, and, and uh, talking to us on the podcast. So I'm grateful to hear that part of your story. Bill and I, and, I, and I like Vitaly. I'm, I may have a hard time going back to Bill, but uh... you're, you're welcome to do it, Raymond. That, that's part of what happened. So when we came to America, uh, if I'd say my name to another American, you know, Vitaly, people say it just fine. But if they read my name, they say like Vitaly or Vitaly. They maybe sound like an herbal supplement. And yeah, so, yeah. And so my mom, she like she asked an American friend, she's like, well, what does Vitaly sound like? And they were like, I, it sounds like William, I guess. And my mom was like, he's good. We go change now. And so yes. through like, you know, my American counterparts, it's Bill in my in high school, I was Billy uh, and obviously William. And then all of my Slavic speaking friends that I, you know, still interact with, it's, it's Vitaly. They say Vitalik with, with a K. Mate, you know, yeah. like Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of, uh, of Kiev right now. Yeah. Yeah. Former boxer. Hey, just mayor now. Former boxer. Yeah. Yeah. Him and his Former mother. world heavyweight champion, if I'm not mistaken. Right, right. Yeah, not just boxer. That's, That's right. right. Former heavyweight champion. Yeah, boy, the way I've, I've enjoyed some of his interviews during this last year and a half and his passion for his homeland and his people and his city. I feel it. Fascinating stuff. I promise we're going to talk about the data center business, but I got to ask one more Kiev, Ukraine family. So, so you, you, as we chatted earlier, you did mention a fascinating fact about your mom. So, so folks that listen know I'm a, I'm a Marine vet, but I do want to hear you. We got to give props to your mother and we got to talk a little bit about her service in the military, just a little bit, sprinkle some of that in that, that yeah, got to hear it. Soviet, it was in the Soviet army. Uh, I honestly, I honestly have not asked her very many details. Uh, I know that she was, we don't a, want to have to kill all our listeners. No, so nothing top no, secret no, here. I, but. I can tell you that she was a very good shot quote top of her class with a sniper rifle. Very nice. And she, I mean, she literally was like, oh, I did. I never missed. I'm like, Oh my God, mom. I don't think I can hear this conversation from my mother. Um, <laughs> you know, what was interesting is that while, while she was doing that work, uh, my dad, um, he was in the army Corps of engineer in the Soviet army, uh, Soviet Ukraine army, I should say. I knew that he was designing missile silos. What I didn't know it was for those missiles. Yeah. Yeah. Those. Yeah. Uh, and so I had, I had no idea. And honestly, I found out a lot about their military service here in the United States when I was like in my late 20s, just because I never really asked. Um, and uh, they never got a chance to keep their medals. None of their, their, their all of that stuff. Just again, you're either Russian or you're nothing. 
Right. I think my dad maybe got a chance to keep like one or two service medals, if I'm not mistaken. Same thing with my mom. Um, but very, very, very little, if anything. They don't they don't they don't talk about their military career. Yeah. My mom does maybe less so, maybe because of what she did. Uh yeah. my dad will talk about his engineering feats all the time though. Love the story of your mom, love uh, her background and, and love uh, the story of how you guys got to America. So thank you for giving us a little piece of you, Bill. That's super awesome. Um, let's switch gears and let's talk a little bit about the data center industry, although it will pale in comparison to your background, which I love and enjoy getting to hear about. Like you highlighted, I was in the systems integrator business for years. Um, I filled buildings full of computers, um, you know, walking in and out of data centers. I only ever had one question. Hey, can you tell me when the circuits are going to be provisioned? Because that's when my servers could plug in and I could get paid because I didn't get paid till they knew their servers worked. And then 10, almost 11 years ago now, someone said, hey, have you ever looked into the data center business? And I was like, wait, you mean someone owns those buildings? Like, duh. And, uh, and, and I got to uh, join our friends at Digital Realty and learn the industry and uh, it has been an incredible 10, 11 years of my life now. And I love to say that we're really the foundation upon which digital transformation happens, right? Um, you know, our industry occasionally will get an elbow to the ribs about, oh, you guys use a lot of power. You know, you're not a very green industry. What are you doing? And, and I always joke with folks. I say, hey, you know, just, hey, just uh, grab your phone. Just tell me what on here you'd like to stop doing. Well, we'll shut it down. You, you don't want to have food brought to the house anymore? No problem. Postmate, we're done with that. Uber Eats, we're done with that. You don't want to catch a ride to the airport? No problem. We'll kill Uber. Um, you don't want to order plane tickets all on? No problem. We'll kill that. Right? Just tell, you don't want to watch Netflix? No problem. I mean, it is really the foundation for digital transformation. The stuff that we've all become accustomed to here all lives in our buildings and, and what a joy to get to help provide um, changing uh, the technology landscape for the world in, in, and building the place for that to live. I really think that's what we do. And, and it's been a joy. No, I, I, I hear you. And uh, you know, um, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit more. Um, I feel like we've seen a transition happening in this industry where we used to say that we are the foundation of the internet. Now I firmly believe that we are the foundation for humanity. And I think that's really special. I think that is, uh, you know, a change in perspective, especially with all this crazy stuff that we're hearing about AI, generative solutions. We are shifting the kinds of things that we are supporting for everyday life. I mean, it's really special. Yeah, here, here. I don't think it's too far a reach that, that the foundation that humanity is using to launch itself into, into all of that's next is really built on the, 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 um, the critical infrastructure industry, the data center mm -hmm. business. So talk with us a little bit. Everybody wants to talk about, you know, what's happening, how's our industry changing, what's going on. Uh, and, and clearly, you know, the thing that, that makes the news and that everyone hears and sees is chat GPT and, uh, uh, you know, uh, generative AI and it's changing the world and machine learning and all the great acronyms. But talk a little bit about from your perch, what you see um, as, as the technology industry and, and really mankind shifting what happens inside those ones and zeros and blinking lights. So at the highest level possible, uh, I want to make sure people understand uh, what, what these systems are and, and certainly how, how they work. Generative AI is a type of machine learning, right? So AI is at the very top overarching umbrella definition term. And generative AI is a, is a type of that which at its core works by training models, software models, to make predictions on, on based on data without requirement for uh, explicit programming. Now, that sounds really detailed and complicated. Traditional AI models, the old, old school stuff, right, from a while ago, was designed to 
uh, identify underlying patterns, data sets based on probability distribution, and find similar patterns, and so on. Think of it as trying to train uh, a child as to what a picture of a dog looks like. That's what it is, right? The more pictures you show, the more accurate it is. Uh, and the more it's able to define using a neural network, what a dog looks like, what it should be, even different kinds of dogs. Generative AI is the same thing, but now instead of teaching the child to recognize a dog, you're teaching a child to both recognize the dog and then draw it, right? Paint it, uh, your owner's reputation. So it's still based off that same concept and model of the data, except now you're creating images or text or videos or all of these other kinds of other systems. And these are done through different kinds of transformative, generative kind of technologies. We've got genera generative uh, adversarial networks, transformers, and some of these other ones. Now, here's the big difference. I'll, I'll say this in terms that we can understand. A single Google search can power a 100-watt light bulb for 11 seconds, consuming about 0.3 kilowatt hours of energy per one, per one Google query. There's roughly between 80, 90 to 100,000 queries in a second. A single... ChatGPT query, so Raymond asks ChatGPT a question just one time, is about 50 to 100 times more powerful than that, consuming anywhere between as little as maybe one to two, upwards of three, four, and five kilowatt hours per query. Now, if Raymond comes out and says, I want a 50 slide deck built in PowerPoint, that's going to be a little bit more you know, power consuming. When we start to take a look at AI, generative AI, everybody listening, please understand this is not Zoom. This is not EVs are going to flood the data centers with all this information. We don't have a precedent for this technology. And just, just to give you an idea, I think it was the first two months that they had a million users, active users. And over the course of nine months, they're just shy of a billion active users, unique users uh, on ChatGPT. We don't have anything to compare this to. Not Instagram, not the most popular TikTok applications, nothing. Has Facebook hit a billion users? I mean, now that I think about it, are they even, and they've been here 20 years, right? I mean, a billion users just. We, 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 can, we can check as, as we talk. But in that sense, Raymond and everybody listening, when the foundation of the internet came out, traditional data centers kind of sort of lost the race. We were relegated to traditional workloads, VMware, Citrix, Microsoft, all of these other tool sets. And, and again, the building of the internet was relegated to those big hyperscalers, the larger ones. They were able to build a lot of that foundation. Right now, it feels like we're losing that race again to the large hyperscalers, the data center industry is starting to catch up. They're seeing that their customers are asking for generative AI, large language model training capacity, um, or just general AI support. And these customers are reluctant to go to the cloud. They don't want their data to be trained against. They want to pay lower prices. Uh, they want to have data locality and data gravity. So for the data center industry, AI, and more specifically, this modern approach to generative AI is a massive opportunity to capture a business that's that's going to be growing, that's hungry to leverage this information. But to that sense, we're going to have to start thinking about maybe designing things a little bit differently. Now, you mentioned something, Raymond, about sort of the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, the you know not in my backyard kind of conversation. I just wrote an article on data center knowledge. It's titled, Get Off My Lawn, You Crazy Data Centers. And if you haven't had a chance to read that, please do, because some of those protesters that I saw for the first time in my career in Virginia responded to the article in the link. Very club. cool. Yeah. I loved what they had to say. And I actually offline connected with one of them. And she's like, Bill, I'm not an idiot. I don't want to go back to the Stone Age. I don't want to write stuff on pieces of paper. I'm not against data centers. What I'm against is the following. And she gave me a really good perspective. I know we're going on a tangent here. She's like, Bill, I know you're responding to a market need. 
And then she goes on to explain that places like Northern Virginia, for example, their government, because they want that business, sometimes they will uh, sign contracts and, and documents in general uh, for, for energy con consumption that's from fossil fuels instead of renewable fuels. And that's what bothers them. They're like, can you help us? We, we need this leadership from the data center industry to go back to government and assign more pressure to say, yes, this business is growing here. Yes, it needs to be here. But please stop signing contracts that expand on fossil fuels. That's not an illegitimate request. And I think, I think that's fair. So there's a lot of learning and growth. And I honestly think that things like generative AI, that's just going to exasperate the challenges. It's going to make it a lot louder. I mean, Raymond, South Park did an episode on chat GPT. That's, if you can't go mainstream than that, then there you go. Yeah. Yeah. You've arrived Yeah, uh, before my friends at Facebook and now meta hammer me 2.9 billion global users. It took them 5.1 years to get to a billion. So, right. you know, multi years, right? Half a decade. So, so thank, thank you, Google, for providing those answers at my fingertips while we talked about it. But to your point, I mean, a billion users measured in months, it's just, it's just uh, the, the growth is astronomical. Absolutely wild. And what we've been doing at Neuro has been really special. So it's been the democratization of these technologies. So bringing it into data center uh, partners, four years spent at Switch, I learned something. Uh, and this is actually summarized beautifully by Peter Gross, who's one of my mentors, is that the data center industry loves innovation as long as it's 10 years old. Well, we, we don't have 10 years to wait on ChatGPT and generally we have, we have maybe months and we're already like six months behind. So one thing that I learned is that for these technologies to actually be adopted by co-locations that serve enterprise and different kinds of customers is that you have to allow them to continue to be good at selling space and power and nothing else. So we are a platform that sits on top as a Kubernetes engine that continues to help data center customers, partners sell space and power, but in the sense of actually creating an architecture that's dense, that is capable of supporting GPT generative AI ready data centers so that these leaders stop having experiencing revenue bleed by sending these customers to the cloud, which sometimes that that those instances for GPUs aren't even available. They're grayed out. So I want our industry to capture this market and 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 be a leader in it. Boy, our, our friends at NVIDIA, it is uh, it's changing their world, isn't it? Oh, I mean, these guys have been experiencing the craziest roller coaster ever, right? From cryptocurrency, yeah, yeah we love NVIDIA yeah. coming down, and then like. Now, generative AI, everything's using GPUs. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm glad you connected the dots back to, to crypto, right? That was everybody had to have the latest miner and had to have the latest processor, put it in the farthest reaches where we can get the cheapest power. And then that whole thing went south. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be tactful about how I say it. And now what AI is doing for, for the GPU is just off the charts. It's crazy. It's, it's absolutely wild. And just just really quick, the GPU power isn't always needed, right? You only need GPUs when you're doing large language model training. When you're doing slight iterative changes to ChatGPT, you don't need that kind of horsepower. Or if you're doing inference training, like for example, Raymond, you asked GPT a question uh, and it retrains the model just because of what you asked, it becomes a little bit better. That also doesn't require massive amounts of GPU. You can do all that stuff on, on CPUs. That's a part of creating a foundation built around AI ethics, AI transparency, and most of all, AI sustainability, so that people using this technology have a very deep, I, I want to use this word, intimate understanding of what these tools are, what these tools are, so that it's not foreign to them. I think it's it's important. That's a part of the democratization process for people to understand what this is. 
the kinds of use cases that we've been applying to this has been, have been absolutely wild, just absolutely crazy stuff. It's been really fascinating. Yeah, and changing so fast. That's the thing that's gotten me is, is how quickly what people are doing and how they're building tools and how they're engaging with it. Um, shocking how fast. And we used to, I, I, I'm going to date myself again. We used to say that things changed at internet speed, right? That's dated you know, term now, right? When it, it, this AI speed has just been a blur, how quickly it's become a real thing and how quickly it's become uh, transformative in so many parts of our economy and now to our business, right? It is, it is changing the, what happens in our data centers radically. Uh, agreed 100%. And one thing I want to eliminate is this fear. It's not going to replace your jobs. It's, it's a co-pilot. It really is a co-pilot, right? You know, in every single use case that we've been designing this, uh, it's there to increase value, even for junior engineers and, you know, junior lawyers that we're working with, junior service people. Instead of looking at one project for eight hours, this technology allows you to look at eight projects, you know, over the course of one hour each and then keep, keep pushing forward. The tools are, are so powerful, and I know we might not have enough time to even go into some of these use cases, but they're extraordinary. I, I'll give you one really crazy example, Raymond. Yeah, give uh, us one. Yeah, just, just one, right? So we're working with a data center services company. These, this company services both manufacturer equipment as well as physical facilities, and they have so much data, so much data that's being, that's being ingested, uh, and some of it's not shared, some of it's in isolated repositories. The goal is to ingest all of it in a privately held model but then also train it against all of these manufacturers, constantly updated manuals, field manuals, uh, drawings, recommendations. Also, uh, train it against field technician notes. I mean, everything from the back of a napkin drawing to specific requirements and documentations around IP addresses. So Raymond from Compass gives me a call and starts explaining an issue to me. What I'm capable of doing is we're actually going to be deploying an audio engine built with GPT that's going to listen to Raymond as he's talking. Now, I'm listening to you, and just to the left is a screen. That's going to be saying, okay, Raymond is discussing data center number four. Cool. Now he's talking about rack row number three in that data center. Cool. Now he's specifically talking about this switch. Ah, he's describing this issue. Well, it looks like this patch wasn't updated, which actually fixes the exact issue that he's talking about right now. So I, as a technician, I already have a solution. I'm just waiting for you to stop talking so I can go apply it. And these aren't 500 page long documents. They're not two, three sentences, highly contextual to what you are discussing and to what the specific situation is. And what happens is after we're done, the model learns and becomes even better and then takes that documentation, applies it to the customer so that the next technician doesn't have to restart all this stuff over. And it's that level of deep intelligence, multi-layered use of data that now I can apply in real time, start to solve these level one, level two, level three technical issues based on all of this. And again, if Vertiv comes out and releases a new document for their condensers, that's automatically ingested and trained against the model so that when the next service comes in, it's already smart, a true co-pilot. I mean, that's just one scratch of the surface of the use cases that we've been working on. They are fascinating. The, um, the thing that gets me there makes me think of, you, we used to use this term institutional knowledge, mm -hmm. right? That that business has learned, right? There's, and while that business was, was a collection, and we'll, use, we'll stick with your technician um, you know, example, the, this, this collection of technicians, they're the guy that's worked there three weeks, there's the guy who's worked there three years, there's the guy that's been there 35 years, and there's this collective institutional knowledge of this firm that you go to to get engineering help and you tap into all of those individuals and it's between their ears and you collectively sort out the institutional knowledge and experience and you get your problem solved. And what I hear you describing is we're going to 
virtualize not only all of the collective of the information, but we're going to allow it to learn off of all each other's experiences and every inbound call. So that three-week-old technician, he's getting data that goes into the model because he's hearing something different than when you go get the guy who's been doing it for 30 years and you send him out on the really complex problem. And we're going to aggregate all of that experience into one solution and ingest it through, through a, a you know this uh, you know voice recognition software that goes, oh, this is what the guy's asking about. Let me go ask everybody all at once. I mean, I know I'm being crude when I say, let me go ask. Let me go query the system about all the experience I've collected and provide an answer. Virtual institutional knowledge. Exactly. It's ingesting that institutional knowledge. And it's not just about everyone. This engine is smart enough to go into specific pieces and places of documentation to ask contextual questions that apply specifically to the conversation that's being had. It's a similar thing that we're doing with an intellectual property law firm in just all their IP right? All their law, laws, rulings, all of that stuff. I'm not a lawyer. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, and then ingest all this other information that's publicly available to them. Um, and then the request is like, can you write a legal document or like a, a legal brief, for example? We're like, don't think of it so linearly. Tell us the judge that you're presenting to will ingest all of his or her rulings and actually yeah. create a brief for you that is going to give you the highest possible probability of winning the case because we now understand how this judge rules. And so it's a deep, conscious, I use that word carefully, approach to leveraging data to solve these really, really complex problems. And again, in, in building these models, supporting people and bringing value, we've seen all sorts of use cases, everything from like healthcare, increasing the number of people that go into bed, supporting more healthcare services and functions, using large language model training to, uh, you know, on the fly data changes, for example, to a virtual AI data center inspector, a company wants to build in a certain region, you as an organization can submit and input any document in any type of form. It takes it, quantifies and qualifies it for you and acts as an as, a, as an actual inspector and says, you're going to have problems with this regulation. You're going to have problems getting this part through this door, through this uh, actual road because there's going to be forecasted closure. So you're not going to be able to use this highway. So it gives you this detailed perspective of not just what the issues you're going to run into, but uh, how you can fundamentally bring capacity online faster. That's another concept that we're working on right now with the company. It's it's absolutely fascinating. Again, if you can hear us talking about this, this is way beyond there being a stream of data, us finding a pattern, reporting on that pattern, and then going to business as usual. This is a truly added deeper layer of context. Fascinating stuff and an exciting time to be alive. I think uh, change scares people. I hear people go, oh, you know, we're going to have the laws aren't going to be able to keep up. Well, whenever have the laws been able to keep up? I mean, that's not a reason not to be charging into the future and engaging uh, with this technology and figuring out how it can change your business and your life and your company and your customer's experience. I mean, just it's just fascinating stuff and, and exciting stuff. And um, the rapid adoption, I think, speaks to how quickly it transforms things, right? I mean, that's the reason the adoption's through the roof. All right, well, Bill Vitali, uh, nothing uh, has happened in this 40 minutes other than it convinced me that we have to do more than one episode with you. So so we're definitely going to have to ask you back. We'll, we will do, uh, I can't, I just, I, I've got like 19 different ideas of things we're going to have to talk about. So we're, we're going to have to uh, see if we can get a contract in front of you and convince you to do multiple episodes. But man, it's been awesome to have you. We're super grateful to, to have you with us on the podcast, but to have you in the industry and have you as a friend of Compass. So we, we, we really appreciate uh, everything you do to promote uh, our industry and what we do as a business and uh, grateful to have you on with me today. 
I appreciate you, Raymond. I appreciate all of your wonderful listeners. Thank you for 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 tuning in. By all means, don't be shy. Find me on on LinkedIn or whatever it is. Uh, let's continue these conversations. I understand that some of these new technologies you're hearing about can be scary or confusing or concerning. Let me let me kind of point it this way: at the latest AFCOM Data Center World event, two of the three keynotes focused on AI, specifically generative AI, and at a Data Center World conference, a generative AI company, software company, won an innovation award. This is not a fad. This is not something that's going to pass us by. It is a fundamental part of what we're going to be doing every single day. Your goal isn't to just like, you know, jump on the horse or both feet in the pool. Your goal is to ask questions. Be curious, not judgmental. Yeah, here, here. I love that. Be curious. All right. Well, Bill, awesome stuff. Thank you for having time to join us and uh, grateful that uh, folks get to hear you and hear you on, on our little bitty platform, our little corner of the world. Awesome stuff.